This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Sunshine List came out today. The Provincial Sunshine List. Everybody knows what this is. This is the list that is put out every year now of the provincial employees, public I'm loath to call them public servants because I really don't think that they're serving. They're not our servants. Let's put it that way. But public employees, government workers, bureaucrats who are making over $100,000 a year. I want to take a wild stab. I know you were during the news break, you knew this topic might be coming up. And I said, take a guess. So you were going, la, 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 not to hear. Because Rick had the story. Because Rick had the story. Any idea, take a wild guess, how many government employees in Ontario are making over $100,000 a year now? So I've been, uh, it's been over 22 minutes since you asked me this question. And honestly, uh, I'm thinking in my head, uh, do I go bold or? uh, But what would bold even, go bold, but what would bold be? Bold, 5,000. 131,741 government workers. That's up 8,000 from last year. And when I hear this number, 131,741 government workers, my immediate thought is, how, how is it possible that we have that many people who are that indispensable, who are making that much money on the public dime? And what exactly are they doing? Uh, you know, it, it's funny because I just guessed 5,000 and I was 125, 226 and some under. Um, I don't know if this is so much a statement on uh, government fat, as it were, or if it's a statement on what we're getting from government. Because I honestly, as an, an Ontarian or a member of a democratic society, I would be comfortable with that number if I was getting good government, properly managed government. For that amount, it should be great government. It should be great government. And and we, we should not have deficits and debt and, and, and we shouldn't be in a hydro mess and all of the other things that are troubling Ontario, insurance, healthcare, you name it. Uh, if I were getting good government, I'd be comfortable with this number. So I think, I think honestly, this is a bigger statement on the kind of government we get than the kind of government we pay for. But isn't the reason that we have a deficit and we have a debt and we can't pay for health care and we can't pay for all this hydro right. stuff because we're paying 131,741 people over $100,000 a year. That's a and, lot of money. And keep in mind, this is not 131,741. By the end of the segment, you're going to remember this number, but you're not, we're not paying those people all $100,000. That's the that's the that's low the baseline. That's yeah. the baseline. Yeah. Many of these people are making considerably more than that. And I'm I work in the private sector. You work in the private sector. Many people listening to us work in the private sector. Mm. That's not the kind of money that is being paid in the private sector these days. Uh, not so commonly. No. Um, there are some people, of course there are some people. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of stuck on this. I mean, I mean I I guess I would need, because, I mean, the way you and I do this, when I, when I come on, we don't know what we're going to talk about. I would love to know what those jobs entail. Does what, it matter? Uh, Does it, honestly, if, could you possibly say, in a province our size, we mm. are not New York City, we're not Los Angeles. Mm. In a province this size, how is it possible that 131,741 people are doing government work worth $100,000? I'm not saying nobody in government should make this kind of money. I'm not saying that at all. Right. But Um, that's a lot of people that are making a huge amount of money. In terms of sheer numbers, uh, sure, uh, we are not New York or L.A., 
although we're close, I mean, in terms of sheer numbers with those two cities, oddly enough, but we are spread out pretty far. So we have to consider that I sympathize with the government in this this way, in that they have to spread a lot of people out into some pretty remote areas, and to get them to go there, they have to be paid. That's Okay, I grant you that. I'm just trying to play No, 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 I, I grant you, you that. Know? Let me back up for a second. I am shocked. Before we even get to the fact of who's making $100,000, we're not talking about federal employees. We're not talking about municipal employees. Just provincial. This is just, I'm shocked we have 130,000 provincial employees, period, let alone the fact that they're all making this much money. How, what are they doing? What, we have a gigantic provincial workforce. Yeah. This, because again, we now have federal and municipal public servants. Mm. And again, I hate the term public servants because they're not servants to me. I'm a servant to them now. My taxes are paying for all these people. Yeah. They, I am their servant. Yeah. I am a private servant now, not a public servant. Where, what are all these people doing that we even need 130,000 public I'm workers? I'm glad you asked that question because now, you know, once I said, I'm going to, I'm going to go bold and said 5,000. You said 131,741. That's right. Ding, ding. Ding, ding. And, uh. He didn't have that in front of him. He's uh, already learned uh, yeah. it. I hope you have it home too. <laughs> he said I'd remember. And, and yeah, that, that's what I want to know. I, um, and it's, it's probably on us as citizens to look up the list and, and, and see what you're going to you're going to sit are. there this weekend and read through 100 uh, I honestly 100. Uh, no uh, <laughs> but it, that would be the responsible thing to do would it not oh, well, so you have a better concept of what what am, where are my taxes going because I, I think a lot of the electric uh, electorate just wonders out loud well where are my taxes going but they don't don't really look into it you know what they look for on this list we got to take a break you know what they look for yeah. they look to see if their neighbors on here oh what's Jennifer making oh what's Bob <laughs> making oh what's and I don't know that they're really looking at their job they're just being nosy and I understand that it's like when you have a house on your street you want to see what it's selling for I understand you're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from 6 to 8 only on 900 CHML chatting about the sunshine list that is the list in this province that came out today that outlines who makes at least $100,000, at least $100,000 on the public dime, by the way. This is not private enterprise. And the total number this year, up 8000 from last year, 131,741 government workers. I didn't know we had that many government workers provincially, period, let alone making that kind of money. But during the break, Ben, or just before the break, Ben was saying, I wonder what you have to do. Now, I'll tell you what, the list, we pulled it up online here. The list is so long that in the commercial break, I didn't have time with the way it's set up to be able to scroll to the end. What did you say? 79 pages? Uh, 79? 779 pages. Sorry, 779. I didn't have time to scroll to the end to look for the people, like what you're doing to make 100,000. But I can tell you at the top of the list, what they are. So number one on the list this year, the president and CEO of the Ontario Power Generation is of making course. one and a half million. And he's the only one over a million, which again tells you something. I don't know what. Uh, the president and chief investment officer for the University of Toronto Asset Management Corporation is at almost a million. The nuclear president and chief nuclear officer of Ontario Power Generation is 858. The president and CEO of the independent electricity system operator, 749. How is it we're paying that's, so much for electricity? That's two it's electrics all in the top three. Five. Three, 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 sorry, three in the yes, top four. Right, right. Uh, president and C, uh, CEO of the Ontario Public Service Pension Board is 745. 
the Senior Vice President of Business and Administration Services of, guess what? Hydro? Ontario Power Generation, <laughs> 739. The President and CEO of Baycrest Center for Geriatric Care, 722. The Executive VP and CIO for the Ontario Public Service Pension Board, 721. The President and CEO of the Hospital for Sick Children, 719. And the oh, President so, and uh, CEO we're of University lives, Health. Finally. We're not turning on lights. So the top 10, they're all over 700. Wow. Now, I don't have, and here's the thing, there are people... And I know this, there are people who get really cranky about people who make money. I don't have an issue with the people who are who are making a lot of money because they are at the top of a massive corporation. Nor do I. The And, and even the one and a half million for hydro. Look, I think our hydro system is a mess, but the reality is this person, if he's not doing this, could probably do something else in business. I'm sure that there's, the point is, it's not the people in the top 10 that I am generally looking at saying, that's the real problem. Mm-hmm. It's the, if we had time, and it would take me about 20 minutes to scroll through to the end to find out what you're doing for 100. It's all the people making 100 to 200, some of which I would say, eh, that makes sense, and some of which I guarantee you we'd say, come on, really? This is the question. I mean, geez, if you're keeping my lights on, if you're administrating a hospital that cures sick kids... Power to you. I, I'm okay with that. I'm, I, right. But I mean, when we're looking at 779 pages and 131,774 people who are making over $100,000, I'm with you. I want to know what it takes to make $100,000. Not much, $100, obviously. $100,000 is a lot of money. You and think. I, I mean, is there a provincial shoe shine? Is but here's a barber? The, but I, ben, if we've got 131,741 people making 100000 I'm assuming, and that's a dangerous thing to do with this, I'm assuming there are other provincial government employees not making 100000 I have to assume that's the case. How many people are working for our provincial government? And you want to know, yeah. know who this helps? You want to know who this list, when it comes out today, helps? Doug Ford. If you are someone who is, law, who is campaigning that we have a fat government that needs to be somehow trimmed, that we have too much money being spent on government... Look, I'm with Doug Ford then, if that's the case, because I'm looking at this saying, there, we don't, I don't even know what they do, but I can tell you, I could guarantee you we don't need 131,000 people at least in government, in, just for the provincial government yeah. in this province. I'm with him on that. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says. Right. But, and now we have two other parties that are coming out and they want to add more to government, which will mean more hires, which I guarantee you will mean more people on the sunshine list. Come on. I agree. Uh, yeah, I mean, if we want to get into the provincial election, that's fine. Doug Ford says he's going to cut these services and trim the fat and all of the things. Whether that, he does it or not, I don't know if he will. Whether or not he, well, okay, but he's also, he's, he's talking about tax cuts as well. So uh, if you're going to reduce the, if you're going to reduce government expenditure, there's only one way to do that. And that is to reduce government fat, which, it, yes, to Mr. Ford's point, feeds into. Uh, I think with this, this is out civil service, he will have. He's going to get some traction off this. That's sure what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. He's going to of all the leaders who are vying for the premiership, mm-hmm. he is going to get traction off this. Here's here was. I'm not a big fan when Tim Hudak came out two elections ago. When was it? And said we're going to cut a hundred thousand. Yeah. Yep. That that blew up and everyone went crazy. 
You don't have to say we're going to cut 100,000 people. All you have to say is we have 131,741 provincial government employees making 100,000. Let's assume we've got 250,000 in total. We have a complete hiring freeze for the next four years. If you retire, if you leave to go somewhere else, if you retire, if heaven forbid you die, we are not replacing you and that's how we'll bring the cost down. We don't have to fire 100,000 people. We just have to be smart with this. I'm, I, would encourage, I would encourage people to go and look at the list. Um, they have, I um, uh, just got an email here. They have 7,360 employees, over 100,000, including shift managers. I'll have to look at the list. I don't know okay. how accurate that is. But anyway, we've got to go to a break. But it just, this is a lot of people really quickly it yes. just i know you yeah. have to break uh, I, I i i'm no business expert but if i'm coming in as the ceo or premier if i'm the incoming premier i don't know why this issue has to come down to bloat government or cut government why not just see where the redundancies are and make it more efficient and i would say i would agree with you but if you've got this many people it seems like it's such a cumbersome job and every manager is looking out for their fiefdom and doesn't want to cut mm. their own place. Mm-hmm. You make a policy that says for four years, nobody is being hired. Yeah. We're not firing anybody, but nobody is being hired. You can get these numbers down. People uh, yeah, leave, people yeah. retire, people die, pe- stuff happens. You could get these numbers down if you wanted to. It's if you want to. Radley and for Premier. No, that'll <laughs> never happen. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, I had a guest on, and I thought it was a fascinating topic. He clearly, and I understand this, and this is why I had him on. He had a point of view. He has an opinion on this one, and he has a vested interest in the answer. So I wanted to bring this topic to someone else who doesn't and hash this out a bit. It's about expats. The idea is, and there's a Supreme Court hearing that was going on this week. Obviously, it's going to take some time for a ruling to come down. But it's about whether or not if you are a Canadian, a Canadian, so you're legitimately a Canadian citizen, but you've moved away from the country for whatever reason. Right now, if you are out of the country for five years or less, you're permitted to vote. But if you're gone longer than five years, you don't get to have your vote anymore. And they're challenging that and they want to make it so that you can vote regardless. And I, I was, you know, I, I certainly heard his point of view and he explained it very well and it was a well thought out position. But at the same time, I, I was thinking to myself, I don't know about someone who grew up here. I got a high school friend, as I mentioned that night, who has moved to London, England 25 years ago. Should he have a vote? If he has no intention of moving back here, he's Canadian, he's Canadian through and through, but he has no intention of moving back and he hasn't been here for 25 years. Should he have a say in how we are governed? And by extension of what we were just talking about, how, what taxes we pay and where the money goes and all that stuff. What do you think about that? I uh, I would equate this to uh, I I know a couple of people who uh, their marriages fell apart and now they have the kids and the other parent is not involved at all. If I were to get a phone call uh, 15 years down the road, if I were raising a kid on my own and I were to get a phone call 15 years down the road, uh, offering me or, or or having an influence on how I raise the kid, I'd be awfully bitter. Uh, and I, I, that's how I sort of picture this. Uh, that's how I sort of see it. Um, no, it's an interesting, if, it's if, an interesting if, perspective. If you've been gone for a while, 
you don't have a say anymore. If you're not, I mean, with all the paying of taxes and everything else, it, it's just that you're not here. Why? I I wonder why would an expat feel the need who's been gone for more than five years? Why would they feel the need? To well, vote? in the last federal election, when it was Harper against uh, uh, Trudeau, yep. Donald Sutherland, for example, was very upset that he was being denied his vote. The actor Donald Sutherland, Kiefer's dad, because he had lived in California right. for ever and ever and ever. And he was really upset that he didn't get to vote. I, I'm sure there are many people who, with very good intentions, they keep up with the country, they follow the country, mm. they know what's going on here, mm. they're very engaged. To the, the problem is, how do you distinguish the ones who, the, the expats who are gone, how do you distinguish the ones who are really on top of stuff and really engaged who want to have a vote because they believe wholeheartedly in something and those who get a, a ballot in the mail and they go, oh yeah, Trudeau, I, yeah, I liked his dad. Okay, we'll give it to him. Okay, I get it. But I mean, if, if, you're, if you're following the politics and, and you have a take on it and, and you feel passionately about it and you love the country of origin uh, of your birth, well, then... A, what contribution are you making? And B, how is your vote going to affect you? But it isn't. If you're Donald Sutherland living in, say, in, in California, wherever it is in California, that that vote doesn't affect Donald Sutherland. But see, he has it affects a... me. Yeah, it does. Although he would say that he has a philosophical viewpoint that he believes in the platform of the liberals. He wants the country of his origin to reflect what he believes the country of his origin should be, you're right, it doesn't affect him at all. I started to wonder after the conversation, should there be a tax on this? And it sounds ridiculous that you're buying your vote, but if you're an expat, if you're willing to pay a certain tax every year to show your your connection still to your country, then you keep your vote. Now that would basically, the problem is that basically then comes across as you having to buy your vote. But if you live here, you have to buy your vote because you have to pay taxes. It's an interesting concept. I'll I'll give you that. As soon as you said it, well, your connection now is you, if you elect this person, it will still impact you financially in some way. But isn't there enough cynicism about politics being bought right now? Of course there is. Right. Uh, So now we're going to round up that president. So now we're going to round up all the celebrities in California who are Canadians and they're all going to buy a vote when other people don't. So yeah, I know that that is a flawed concept. And those people who are buying votes are, are, uh, have big voices. And and, I mean, when you said Donald Sutherland, I thought, okay, all right, so this, uh, and I am not a right-wing guy. I, I'm, I'm a centrist, So, but I think there is a, a definite cynicism about uh, Hollywood and celebrities in particular leaning left, and if those people are allowed to buy votes... I know it's a, it's a, you understand it is a, it is a truly, uh, it's a flawed concept what I'm proposing, but how else do you then require someone who's an expat if they want to have a vote to feel, what's the word feel, contribute some way to be connected somehow to the country where it matters to you. I am not often a black and white guy, but don't be an expat, be a pat, come on home. You want to vote? Come home. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Stefan Perot is the acting chief electoral officer of Canada. He has said, well, here's what, um, here's what he proposed. Here's his quote. Voting when you're 16 is voting at a time when most Canadians at that age are still in school. At a place we can actually get to them and engage them, he said. 
proposing that maybe it's time for Canada to consider lowering the voting age to 16 because we want to initiate and instigate their lifelong involvement in the democratic process. All right, Ben, I'm, I'm, I like the idea that we get people involved in voting. When we have a municipal election, we get about 22% of people coming out. It's shameful. However, is the answer to this to lower the voting age to a time when, quite frankly, without sounding like you and I being grumpy old men, I'm guessing most of the kids who would be 16 don't pay taxes, don't have bills, don't have, they, I bet you that 99% of 16 year olds vote for Justin Trudeau last election. And I'm not arguing for or against the liberals, but because he has nice hair and he, he was sunny as opposed to for political reasons. I just, I'm not sure that this is a grand idea, but what do you think? I'm firmly behind it. Are you? Yep. Absolutely. Now, I think, and that comes with a certain caveat, is that uh, if you're going to lower the age, I've always thought, I mean, there there are a lot of things missing from the educational curriculum. Why are we learning about trigonometry unless we're going on to become mathematicians? Why not learn how to budget our money? Why is that not a... Teresa Cascioli used to be with um, Lakeport is now her book and she's involved. They are bringing it into high school. So people are going to learn how to budget their money. It's a great thing. So should we be doing the same with politics? Yes, absolutely. It it should be, it should be something that is instilled in kids. And here's a, here's a funny thing because we had a talk on our show this morning over on, on why this morning about capping the driving age. You have to be a certain age in order to get a license. Once you get to a certain age, should you not have a license anymore because you're, it, it is generally accepted that you're not responsible enough to drive. And that's a contentious and what issue. And what was the sentiment? It was, it's a very subjective thing. See, because me, I think when you get to a certain age, you shouldn't lose your license, but you should be required to show you can keep your license. Okay. So and you have to take a test. So then you bring this down to voting. This is exactly what I'm getting to, is that if you've had 88 years, you still have the the, the franchise to to vote, you go ahead, you make your vote. But if you've been around 88 years, uh, you've been politicized, uh, you're jaded, probably, uh, and you're not... Probably locked in. And locked in, right? And it doesn't allow for a whole lot of open-mindedness. If we can reach out to young minds... And they're educated in, in, in the language of not only politics, but of democracy and what their representatives represent, then yes, lower that, allow some fresh minds into the vote. And I think it would infuse, uh, I, 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 you have to consider, uh, if you're, here's one other thing, I don't mean to drag this on no, too long, go. but an 88 year old who has a vote, I hate to say this, may not be around for the legacy of that vote. So why not decrease the age and allow people who are, I'm not saying bring it down to four years old, but I think 16 is a pretty reasonable cutoff. See, I'm I, when I started by saying that you they would have voted for Trudeau or whoever else, mm. that was based on the fact that you're not doing something in school. And it's basically, I would guess that most, if you look at the what most 16-year-olds are doing on their computer and what they're watching on TV, it is a celebrity-driven Age, Very and much therefore so. you are not voting based on policy or platform. You're basing it on celebrity. I don't want us to have politicians becoming more celebrity driven to now appeal to a group of kids that they look and say, well, there's an extra 500,000 votes. However, if your point is 
that we're going to teach this as part of a school curriculum, I am more amenable to it. But again, with a caveat, let us say that your child is in my class and I am teaching whatever the civics course that is going to be leading to voting. And I am a dyed in the wool, hard, ardent, staunch, right, right, right conservative. And all I teach your kids is the conservative viewpoint with the goal that I am going to turn these kids into a voting block of future conservatives or the other side. You raise a great point. Where I am now exposed only to the viewpoint of the teacher who is spinning the election position to what he or she would think you should vote. That is the danger to me now of doing this. At least at 18, you have presumably developed some of your better individual critical thinking, you hope that you're not going to maybe be quite as beholden to the thought process okay. of the people teaching you. That's my concern with it. Okay, t- well, two things. First of all... 15 it, seconds. Okay, if we're going to put uh, uh, politics into the curriculum, uh, we have legislated what sex education is. We could legislate what political education is and put rules in place and Let's safeguards hope that does it. in order for that not to happen. And secondly, uh, I mean, we have uh, a lot of us who are our age uh, are worried about kids and their interest in celebrity and everything else. Why not give them a new interest at a younger age so that by the time they are 18 and they're becoming adults, I mean, at 16, we're a little low, but get them engaged earlier through a, uh, through a curriculum in the education system and enable them and empower them to have a voice. And I think it's a great idea. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Really interesting story this week, Ben. That ties into Hamilton, although it's a national story, but there was a definite interesting Hamilton connection to this. Many of you listening will be familiar with what's been going on with the summer jobs program in this country. And that is the federal government in recent months has required people, groups, charity groups or whomever else, if they are going to apply for a grant for a summer job so you can hire some students or whatever else, You have to fill out all the forms, but you also have to check off this box on your computer that says, I support, and it lists a bunch of things, but one of them is pro-choice. I support abortion, or at least a woman's right to have an abortion. Well, there's a lot of groups that say, wait a second, uh, we follow the law, but we don't necessarily believe that we have a difference of opinion but now in order if you don't check that box you are immediately eliminated from consideration for a grant this is a this is a necessity that you check that box if you don't check it off you are immediately disqualified from getting any kind of grant for this summer jobs program so david christopherson ndp from hamilton uh, longtime NDP uh, politician here, and by his definition, by his self-acknowledged, whatever, staunch pro-choice, but he went against the voting, the will of his party this week and said, no, you know what? You have to follow the law of this country, but I'm not sure you have to agree with the law. You are still entitled in this country to dissent. And this is my question for you, because to me, Ben, this is getting into, for me, this is getting into a bit of a dangerous, scary area because I would a hundred percent agree that we have to follow the laws of the land that our government, whatever government it is, has put in place. But do we have to believe in those laws? Do we have to agree with those laws? That to me seems like it's getting into a frightening place. Honestly, it does. It definitely does. Um, 
I mean, wow, this is... Um, it's a very yeah. It's a dangerous precedent. I, I I'm trying to think of it from both sides. If I'm if I'm getting government assistance to uh, pursue what I would like to do to be a contributor to society, I'll check off anything. I, I I don't care. Sure, yeah, I believe in that. It's from that point. It's a formality. But you are um, well. What is something you believe very strongly in? Something I believe. Yeah, on any side of the I don't care what the what it is. What what's something you believe wholeheartedly in? Uh, gender equality. Okay, so let's say, and in this particular case, even though they would never, the federal government, which is pushing hard for women's rights, and let's say that whoever, that some government got in and said, you have to check off that you believe yeah. men are superior to women. So it's something that flies in the face of your core beliefs. Right, yeah. Are you going to check that off to get that grant money? You're probably going to say, no, I shouldn't have to do this. Yeah. Um. No, that... that I, I, yeah, I can't see my way around this. I mean, that that's, uh, that's uh, sorry to dumb it down, but that's not cool. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't ask somebody to state, yes, I definitely believe in this. If, if you're on the fence or whatever, I, I, I don't understand the motivation. And I, this, well, the motivation is easy. The mo- I mean, I'm sorry, but the motivation, this sure. government, this government has done everything so far to be seen as the feminist government. Right. And, do, and so we are going to make sure that everybody follows our lead, not only physically, but intellectually, emotionally, yes, spiritually as well. This flies in the face of, of dem- democracy. Of the Charter of Rights. Of the Charter of Rights. Right. Where in order to get assistance from my government, I have to agree with them. And the gentleman circling back to the, the whole uh, curriculum about uh, education and, and, and the democratic system and so on and so forth, who mentioned North Korea, you're indoctrinizing... Do- is that the right word? Yeah, yeah, indoctrinating. Indo- indoctrinating. Either one. Right, okay. So you're indoctrinating people uh, to believe or, or at least have a look at your point of view in order to get assistance. That is, that's horribly wrong. That's, yeah, that's inexcusable. Well, and the tricky, the tricky, I don't even know if it's tricky. The part about this that I find so interesting is that the government has put this in here. And I know there are people listening who say, I am staunchly pro-choice. I have no problem with this. People should believe in this. Well, there are people who, for a variety of reasons, religious, whatever else, don't and are not going to change their view on this. And here's the part about this that gets so complicated. We don't have, if you're arguing that you are have to check this off because it's supporting the law of the land, mm. It's not. We don't have an abortion law in this country. We have the absence of an abortion law. That's why there is there is no law for or against. It was struck down. There is no, no one's ever tried to write a new law, which means presumably another government could come in and because there is no law, they could put the same attestation form on saying you must be pro-life or you can't get a government grant. And the people right now who are screaming saying this should be here. This is great that this is here. It's forcing people to fall in line would be screaming the loudest. It's, it's great until they put the checkbox on that you don't agree with. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And the, the, the Charter of Rights, we were talking about this last night. We had Mayor Fred Eisenberger on here. We were chatting, if anyone was listening, we were chatting about hate groups and it's so funny you should mention this because I was drawing a parallel in my head and I wasn't sure if it was appropriate. But this on 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 two sides of the spectrum coming from two different parties, this is the exact same thing. Uh, you, you know, to claim 
uh, your right of, of freedom of association and speech and expression and, and so on and so forth in order to say, well, I'm an anarchist, so I'm allowed, I'm allowed to say this. To me, there is, I'm not sure how to draw it up, but there is some sort of equivalent coming from the side where I have to check a box to say, yeah, I'm pro-life in order to get assistance. Well, the difference is if you are, and we don't, we still don't for sure. I don't want to, we don't know who threw the bricks through the windows on Lock Street. All right. But it's one thing to say, I subscribe to a philosophy, a belief, a religion, a whatever that disagrees with the law. Mm-hmm. It's another to throw a brick through a window to show your disagreement with the law. I just pulled up the Charter of Rights in Canada. It's not very long. Of the fundamental, it's under, it's under the headline of fundamental freedoms. Right. The very first one, everyone has the following fundamental freedoms. Freedom of conscious, conscience and religion. And number two, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression. You can't, as a government, in my mind, require someone to agree with your law they must follow your law. They must obey your law. They don't have to agree with it. We have the right down further, freedom of association, freedom of peaceful assembly. You can go out and protest laws. I can't, we, we see I, people do it all the time. I can't disagree. And I guess this is ultimately the parallel I'm trying to draw is this checkbox thing is a brick through my window. Philosophically, philosophically, spiritually, th- sure th- it is. Th- this is a brick through my window. You you can't, this, this is inexcusable. Uh, if... If you're going to offer assistance, it cannot be based on what somebody believes in. Now, what they are arguing, what the liberals have argued with this, their point is we were giving some government some small percentage of our government summer jobs grants. We're going to associations, organizations, whatever else that were involved in pro-life activities that were going against what we stand for in this country. Therefore, we don't want to be directing any more resources to people, in their words, who would deny women the chance to have freedom of choice. Therefore, to make sure that doesn't happen, everybody now has to attest that they believe in freedom of choice. I just, I think this is a very dangerous precedent, and I I don't think anything to do with all those freedoms you just read, anything that you believe in religiously, Ethically, morally, unless unless it is detrimental to society, none of those things should be any part of the the curriculum, any part of the uh, 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 the requirement of why you're going to get aid from the government to do something that's going to contribute back to society. I if think. you shoot an abortion provider, a abortion doctor, that is clearly something different. If you accost a woman assault her going into an abortion clinic. That is something different. If you work for an organization that is working on pro-life activities, Mm -hmm. as I said before, whether the liberals, whether any government likes it or not, we don't have a law in this country that is legal to do until you do something that breaks a law. Right. So even if they say, we don't want to support these organizations, my thing is, but they're not, until they've broken a law, they can disagree. They can fundamentally in every way disagree with you and act on that disagreement, provided the actions they take are not breaking the law. When they break the law, then you can say, no, that organization is now off because they have, it's the same, I would say, again, using the Lock Street example. Yeah. I'm loath to say 
in the city of Hamilton, despite what our council has suggested, I'm loath to say we are going to ban quote, quote, hate groups from public property if they do something that warrants their being banned from public property. I'm all in favor of banning them, but just because they stand for a certain philosophy or something else that is in disagreement with what many people think, that's, you're getting into some weird dangerous 1984 government oversight Very so. stuff. Very much so. And I, geez, why not make it a simpler question? You're choosing one of the most philosophically, morally, ethically, emotionally contentious issues. This is a, for people, this who people who believe strongly, this is life and death. This is not about saying I like Bugs Bunny Roadrunner over Wiley Coyote me, more. Just ask me my favorite color Skittle and yeah. I've got no problem. This is a this is a fundamental uh, life and death yes. question for people. Yeah. And so if you had a checkbox that said we will not we're checking off here that we do not break the law. We do not uh, affect people, other people's freedoms. Fine. Right. I, I'm for, against, any, for anything, right. for anything, I'm abortion what, or anything else. I'm against what you're talking about, but it should not hinder my ability to get assistance. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Ben McVie in studio. Um, yeah, Bare Naked Ladies getting back together. I don't even fully remember what it was that they kind of broke up for, but they're back for this. And I got to believe that when they come back, everyone's going to go bananas because the bare naked ladies are playing the Juno awards and they'll go, wow, that went pretty well. Let's go on a big tour here and make a lot of money. And I expect that that'll happen. I fully believe that's going to happen. Yes. I don't it think... was a bit of a drug fiasco, by the way, with Stephen Page. Right. It led to their demise, but I don't think they do this one time get back together thing, unless some bridges have been mended and they're ready to take advantage of the situation. And good for them. I mean, I've seen them a couple times in concert and when they were all together. Yep. Fantastic. You know, and never a huge fan, but a huge admirer of their talent. The part about them live that was so great was the music was, if you like the music, you like the music, but Mm. they were just terrific riffing and it was fun and it was, the music was good and the, it was fun and it was funny and all the rest. And yep. And if they can recapture that, they'll have a they'll have a pretty good 2018, making a few, so putting a few bucks in the bank. So. Oh yeah, yeah. No, if they if they come back and do a cross country tour, it'll. It, and I mean, I mean, they've had commercial success in the states too. So it, it which yeah. just blow the tragically hip's last concert out of the water, right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> ben is Canada's number one tragically hip fan. That was a direct shot. But uh, uh, look, it, the um, the Juno Awards are this weekend, and. There will be many great acts that will be there, many great artists. There'll be some that are probably not so great, Justin Bieber, but um, nonetheless, you know, we, we don't necessarily have to like every act that comes out of this country. We're not that small minded, I don't think anymore, that we are obligated by law to like them because they're Canadian. Mm. But I do wonder, we are now in a very, very, very different age from when the CRTC put in the CanCon rules that said radio stations, TV stations have to play a certain percentage of Canadian content. We are now in the internet age. You can go on to Apple Music and listen to whatever you want, whenever you want. Have we completely not outgrown the whole CanCon thing? Could they not survive even without Canadian content rules or with far more loose Canadian content rules? I don't know that we could serve that, not we as a country. The music industry. The music, Canadian music industry. I don't think, 
Hmm. This is a tough one. I don't think it could survive with a complete absence of a CanCon rule, but I do think it needs to be why not? loose and considered. Okay, why not? Because there are bands. Neil Young would have always been successful, and Celine Dion and Shania Twain and go well, on and on. There's it, lots. It, yes, and here's the thing is, aren't we in a great position where, uh, you know, we can look at the Junos and say, eh, well, I don't care about that music, and I don't care about that music, but it's all great. Uh, we have a number of great artists and a number of great genres musically. It's, it's a great position to be in. Um, I, hmm. Would the Tragically Hip okay. have survived as a band uh, without CanCon? I'm Con? trying to think, yeah, I'm trying to think of it in this, uh, if, with that in context. And yes, I, I do think that there would still need to be a legislated amount of airplay to get these bands through. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that we, uh, we have, I think, per capita, the greatest musical talent in the world, but there just aren't as many of us. And there is this infiltration. And it, it also begs the question of how music is distributed now, as you were saying, with uh, iTunes and YouTube and all the different ways of accessing music. I, uh, as somebody who still works in Canadian rock radio, would like to believe that uh, radio is still an effective distributor of music, uh, of what we hear in terms of new artists and artists who have been around for a while. So, yeah, I do think that... We are too stringent uh, on the amount of Canadian content we need to play, although I do think it still needs to be legislated. And one thing further, uh, sorry if, no. I'm, if I'm running Keep on, rolling. but one thing further is that it really depends upon music format, how CanCon affects you. Um, I think that there has been a significant enough musical explosion in Canada since around 1985, 1990, Tragically Hip and Big Sugar and Nickelback and all these bands that have come out. I know, Nickelback. Uh, Justin Bieber. Where There has been a, a, a big enough infusion of talent and music, Canadian music, has become relevant worldwide um, like it never was before. If you're playing anything from the 70s, I mean, if you're a radio station that's playing, oh, geez, pick out your obscure Canadian artist right from the 1970s uh it's a bit of a hindrance well and so okay so this is the tricky part well i say tricky part a lot tonight there's been a lot of tricky parts yeah if we with the cancon rules we are still though and i don't mean we as in chorus right here i mean radio in general yeah yeah is playing the bands, the artists that are the hit makers that are popular, and there's no obligation that I understand in CanCon rules to say, if you have a pop radio station, you can only play Justin Bieber three times a day. You could play Justin Bieber 15 times a day, and that counts towards your CanCon. And by the way, if you don't know what CanCon is, Canadian content. Canadian content, yeah. If So there's nothing that requires you to promote prop up accelerate the f- development of lesser bands, bands that are struggling, you can co- cover all your CanCon requirements with the three or four hugest bands that are already playing in the States anyway. You can play Drake all day long. That's right, yeah. He's already enormous. Yep. So I'm wondering maybe I should rephrase my question. Should we be changing the rules so that if we're going to have Canadian content rules, they actually work to help the bands that are up and coming, up less, and coming, lesser, lesser known, as opposed to just saying, "Yeah, we'll play 
Bieber and Drake and and whomever and Celine Dion and Shania Twain. We'll play them all day long. Who cares? That's great. That doesn't matter because they're playing those in New York and L.A. and Chicago anyway. So what difference? Uh, it's an excellent point. I mean, geez, I've been working rock radio for a long time, and I uh, honestly, as big a fan I am, I've been tragically hit and nickelbacked to death, it, honestly. And if I'm listening to classic Canadian rock radio, I have been April lined and rushed to death. Well, you can never be rushed to death. No disrespect to those guys. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, that could never happen. But I mean, you know, to, yeah, to, to your point, there should be, I don't know if it applies so much to classic rock, but in, in terms of newer stations, pop stations, definitely, I agree with you. There should be some sort of um, uh, new and up-and-coming artists should be afforded a certain part of that 35% CanCon that we're required to play. Yeah, and I wonder, like, again, using bands that are very familiar to us in Hamilton, and it's hard to extrapolate outside because we don't hear radio outside Hamilton all that often. We're working here. Do Arkells get tons of airplay elsewhere? I think they do. Cross country? I think so. Very much so. And is that entirely CanCon or is that because people like Arkells and so they want to, they ask for them to be played? I would say now, no, it's because people like Arkells. Although, again, to your point of bands, up and coming bands, I think CanCon is a reason that the Arkells can uh, can do that now, can, can hold their own now. That's why they've gotten where they've gotten, is because we're required to play them. I know, and and again, uh, geez, I, I know the guys in the Arkells, uh, and it's no disrespect to them and no disrespect to their music or their fans, but I don't think they would be where they are without CanCon. I, I, okay, I and Monster Truck is another one that would be similar. Same. Yep. Hamilton Band. Absolutely. And Monster Truck, I mean, I know those guys too. They're playing Vegas with Nickelback, and they're doing European dates, and they, they, they're all over the place now. They're doing very well for themselves. Y108 was the station that broke that band, and then they made it into this sort of mainstream Canadian rock radio mix, but I don't know that they get there without us being mandated to uh, play and develop some Canadian Well, the, they, they actually create a, a really interesting conundrum because they are probably, even though everyone here in Hamilton is familiar with mm -hmm. them, they're probably bigger outside Canada yeah. than they are here. So the CanCon thing, they would have, they rose to their own prominence. There's no EuroCon. They didn't, no European stations, no German stations had to play them. They created a sound that was desired over there and that people liked. Uh, uh, again, to me, it's just the, the, the playing of the five biggest superstars over and over and over to fulfill your requirements seems ludicrous. Yeah, it, it does. really does seem ludicrous. Which is why I'm saying I, I, I do think that CanCon is a definite uh, boon to up and coming Canadian artists. There's no but it's question an out of in my mind. Boon. But it's an out of date boon, and I think that um, the P, uh, the CRTC and the CSBC need to to reexamine how much radio is responsible for the distribution of music. And I, it, it, this pains me to say because radio used to be that's where you went for new music. We're not anymore. And so, well, I, I see and here. I I disagree with that on one other point as well. Sorry to interrupt you. Okay. No. I think people will go and listen to Apple Music or YouTube or whatever else after they've heard, they've been in their car or whatever, and they've heard a song and they went, I liked it. There was a, there was a, 
um, one evening, Nick Chino, who's on Y108 at night, Nick yep. was off. I don't even know who the person was, to be honest, who was filling in that night. I can't remember who it was. They played a song, and I was driving home listening to it, and I went, I kind of like that. Yep. And I went and looked it up. I would have never found that on Apple Music without hearing it on the radio. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> and so, And so I think there is clearly still that place it may be a slightly different place yeah what radio does there was a time when i was a kid when i would take my we had our ghetto blaster and you could record off the radio on your cassette tape i have all kinds of those absolutely and so you got all these these songs that are that have the dj's voice leading into it that you were listening to yep. but that was how you would listen to your music through the radio now we get introduced through the radio right it's different but I just, I, I'm looking at this CanCon thing saying, I, look, you're going to play Drake anyway. Well, I think, and I think that's where the compromise is, is that as, as uh, I don't think there's any question. I have no illusions that, that radio's role is diminishing um, in introducing new or favored music to people. I, there's no question about that. But, uh, but at the same time, uh, it, as you were saying, who is this? I I, I need to know. Okay, so, now I'm gonna, as, I'll look it up while you're talking. I sure. Gotta... As 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 we as as the role of radio diminishes, so should the level of required Canadian content. Because you're right, there's a lot of great meat there, but there's a lot of fat too, and that needs to be trimmed. Uh, it is uh, someone who actually has local connections here okay. to the Oakville area, but I believe she now lives in England or France or somewhere. It was a, an artist called Alice Merton. Oh, Alice Merton, No Roots. Yeah. So I, I heard that song for the first time. Fantastic song. Um, you know, another one, another a perfect example, and my family has teased me about this, is several years ago, we're driving somewhere and heard Uptown Funk for the first time, which is a song that, of course, we've all now heard 47 million times, and yeah. we're probably more than that. But I remember the first time hearing it going... This what is, is really, that? This is really That good. is really, yeah, when you yeah, get yeah, into the big here. brass and the big, you know, yep. that's like, this is real. What is this? Yeah. And I would have, now, I suppose you can't say with that one that you would have never heard it later on mm-hmm. because you were just inundated with it. Yes. But, you know, it, 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 there is still that role. But it is, maybe that role now needs to be more, the Canadian content role should be more to say, listen, you've got to play someone that you have not played well, exactly. Already that day. I mean, You've got to have five songs, five Canadian content, whatever the, the criteria is, you have to have five songs that you will only play once that day, that you can't be from, I mean, an artist that will only be on that station once. Do something. Music programming is a very, it's a very complicated thing. Uh, I, and I mean, I'm, I, as, as someone who listens to radio and someone who works on the radio, but not on the programming side of radio, music radio, there are two philosophies. You play a whole bunch of stuff and a whole bunch of variety and, wow, I've never heard this before. Or there's the approach that, okay, let's say you're having a party and you've got a 100 people coming over. Are you going to, and you're the one in charge of your, your music, are you going to be the one who's going to play something that no one's heard of or are you going to play a 100 of their favorites? Of course. Where everybody's going to be happy. I don't agree with that, but I see the logic in it, and it's, <laughs> I find it unfortunate. And, no, it's true. I'm saying this is a member of music radio that I wish we did have more variety, particularly with Canadian artists. Imagine you were a wedding DJ, and you showed up at a wedding, and you played 40 songs over the course of the evening that no one had ever heard. They were German techno pop. Yeah. 
And everyone's going, play YMCA. I'm going to play you something from Beckoff, Psychopathetic Soul Manure. (laughs) Everybody. Everybody. (laughs) Dance floor. (laughs) Right? Yeah, cleaned off. It is is People want the familiar. Uh, By the way, uh, Frank just writes in, there's never been a time as important as now with the influx of open season availability of program content. And unless we insist on heavier restrictions to the invasion of foreign dominance, Mm. not only in the musical front, but also of that to everything we depend on in the media... Uh, will be run off the map of existence. I, I don't, as I say, we've got to wrap up here. I don't disagree with Canadian content. I just think what they're doing with it right now or how yeah. it's being accommodated is, is redundant. You're I'm, already yeah. going to play Rush. You're already going to play Shania Twain. We don't need someone saying, hey, play more of that. Say you've got to play five songs a day. That that's the only time that artist is going to be on your station. Yeah. And maybe then some of those bands like Arkells, when they were starting out, get a little bit of a, the, the whole point of if this, they 30, get a push. If it's 35%, why can't we break that down and legislate that 25% is the stuff you know and the stuff you love, and 10% is, here's someone new. And I, I think that's, that's a great compromise. It does need to be, it's a necessity, but it needs to be tweaked. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. All right, so as we wrap tonight, the one, one of the big stories of this week, which has been uh, going around, it's out of the U.S. and it involves U.S. politics, but uh, we may be insulting some people here. There has been a big argument about Facebook this week with mm. data mining on Facebook and people. And so I, I've been very confused by this for two reasons. One is I went and read a story from 19, sorry, from 2000 and I don't know what, prior to Obama being elected. And they were talking about the geniuses who were data mining people's stuff out of Facebook and other places. And I was like, wait a second, you know, politics is politics. I understand we all have our different points of view. I'm not quite sure that you can say that this was genius when it was done by one and scandalous when it's done by the other. That being the point, that's not even the point of this. The point is if you have, if Facebook can entirely force you to decide who you're going to vote for. I would suggest that maybe you are leaning towards being an idiot. (laughs) Surely. Will you get off the fence, please? Surely you have enough of a thought process of your own that seeing something on Facebook does. I mean, no one is arguing Facebook actually cast an electronic vote for you. Yes. They are saying you are such a dim witted numbskull that seeing a story or two on Facebook completely changed your worldview and you had to rush to the ballot box and vote for someone else. That does not suggest an intelligent populace. If we believe, if we believe that's what happened, we're admitting that we are all morons. It does not suggest a politically aware, intelligent populace. You are absolutely right. Or a discriminating populace. Or a discriminating populace. Um, It's, I think the last time I was here, we were talking about this. It, it is it is a very scary environment right now and how we get our information. I do think this is a reality. I do think it's a concern. Um, however, the, the, the irony that I've found in this is the people who are sort of um, on the surface of this story and haven't really dug deep into it, because I've asked this question of a few people. Wow, geez, did you hear? They're, they're taking my information off Facebook and they're learning things from me. Uh, I, I'm firmly against this. Really, uh, have you put a picture of your kid 
on Facebook yeah. lately? Oh, I got a dozen of them up there. Well, uh, you're willing to share that? You're willing to share what your kid looks like? Yeah, and what school he or she and goes to. school and, yeah. he or she goes. You're willing to say, hey, I'm on vacation. Uh, post pictures. I'm on vacation. I'm in Puerto Vallarta. My house is empty. Exactly. You, you don't think about that, but they find out that you have some left or right leanings in politics and use that information to their advantage, and suddenly you're up in arms. I'm not saying that the practice of mining data for political gain is right. I'm just saying for the people who are getting really upset about this and saying that your privacy is being invaded, go ask your nine-year-old about their privacy when you've got a picture of them graduating from grade whatever on the front lawn with the school sign in behind them that's an invasion of privacy well and there's two things to that one is that this has been going on for a long time this yeah. is not a new phenomenon all right so anyone who thinks that donald trump's people are the first ones to do this no that's not the case that so is not this, the case and the second point is the whole idea behind data mining or at least part of it is that they are going to personalize what you get to make you think away. But here's the thing that they also know. If you, Ben McVie, were an ardent, ardent liberal, mm -hmm. you're not going to read a story about ardent, ardent conservative things. Which they, is a very unfortunate thing. It is. We need to broaden our perspective. But they know that you will read stuff that you want to read. Mm. They know that people on the conservative side, if they were, if you were a conservative, they'll want to read conservative stuff. So the irony of this whole thing, we're talking about all this data mining and how it infect, affected or infected people. The people who were conservatives were getting conservative stuff, which was only bolstering their view. And the liberals were getting liberal stuff, which was only bolstering the, no one was actually being brainwashed to switch sides or all to go to one side or the other because they know people skip over that stuff. So all it did was entrench people more into their positions, if anything. But again, I go back to my point. If you are so shallow, dim, whatever you want to say, that you saw two or three things on Facebook over the course of the election, you said, well, then that decides it. I can only vote. Then you're a moron. I'm going to circle back very quickly to something we talked about earlier. When we were talking about making, uh, uh, lowering the voter age and what the educational curriculum would include, could this not be a big part of that, to educate kids that you don't go for your political influences don't go to social media go you know if you're one day going to be a, a trudeau supporter then go across the street and talk to the guy who's saying 100 percent. 100 percent. if right? i was if i was teaching a class in civics to go back to that same point if i was teaching a civics class the first day i would ask for a show of hands the first day asking people before they know why i'm asking this what's your political viewpoint are you if you're a liberal if you think you're a liberal if you believe in this and this and this, let me see your hands mm. and make a note. And who would be conservative? And you know what? Every single assignment that you had for the rest of the year, you would be required to argue the other side. Yep. You lock in without knowing it on day one. Yep. Because the one thing we don't do is listen, talk, or read 
stuff from the other perspective. We shut it out. We engross ourselves in what we want. We want a mirror to tell us that what we're thinking is correct. I would, I would, I would be curious to know. I, I don't know if this would be possible, but I would be curious to gra- uh, to to gather a hundred people who are really upset about this data mining thing. I'd be very curious to know what percentage of those one hundred people get their political news off of social media. And I guarantee you- 95. Yeah, I guarantee you it would be very, very high. 95, and they would all be, well, the people, uh, I'm telling you, right now in this absolute moment, the people who are upset about data mining are Democrats or liberals. Mm. Four years from now, the people who are upset about data mining might be conservatives or Republicans because it just apparently whoever wins, the other side thinks that, for some reason, they have been hoodwinked or if you don't want to be hoodwinked, spend a little time learning what it is yeah. and don't rely on your friend Becky's post on Facebook about how, you know, Hillary Clinton has fat ankles or something. I mean, I don't know what, whatever the thing it's is. It's funny what defines a patriot right now. And I truly believe that what a patriot is, is somebody who wants their uh, their their democracy to be run fairly and efficiently and while while those of us who do care about that and those of us who go to different sources for political information uh, and those of us who actually broaden our minds to say okay well what does the other side have to say about that and what are the what what are the values of that and oh geez i agree with that for those of us this whole thing seems really silly this whole data mining thing. It seems silly that people are up in arms about this. The sad fact is, uh, as, as a patriot, you need to get out and, and encourage people to stop going to Facebook and Twitter and well, Instagram to find out how they should vote. And if you are upset about data mining, now we're, this would be more of a conversation for those in the States, but if you're upset about data mining because you believe that you were roped into voting for someone, mm. you are acknowledging that you are a dim bulb. That's just <laughs> you're all you're acknowledging saying. Acknowledging that you were roped in. And you didn't do your work and you were fooled or something, but it's saying, I am really a moron. And the sad Hello, state of, over here, the, I'm the moron. And that's the sad state of affairs. There's a lot of them out there. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.